0: would have thought. Nuclear power is back. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. To be fair, in many parts of the world, nuclear has never gone away. It's responsible for a large portion of energy generation in Europe and increasingly China. But in the US, nuclear power has carried a stigma dating back to Three Mile Island and the China Syndrome. All of the commercial reactors now in operation commenced construction before 1977, and no new plant has broken ground since 1974. So why are we still talking about nuclear? Because concern over the finite nature of fossil fuels and the pollution that results from their use has caused many people to rethink nuclear power. As a result, we're seeing a wave of new building at existing sites. At the same time, the industry's revival is posing a number of supply chain challenges, especially with regard to supplier management, reliability of transportation, and the quality of parts. To talk about these issues, I'm joined today by two professors from Clemson University. Bill Farrell is Professor of Industrial Engineering and Associate Dean of the Graduate School. Scott Mason is Professor and Interim Chair of Industrial Engineering. He also holds the floor-endowed chair in Supply Chain Optimization and Logistics. So here is my conversation with Bill Farrell, and Scott Mason. Well, Scott Mason, welcome to the podcast. Hello. And Bill Farrell, you as well. Welcome. Thanks. Hello. Maybe i 'll start with you, Bill. Give us kind of a high level view of just what a nuclear supply chain looks like, typically in terms of the modes of transportation that are deployed, what the network kind of kind of looks like in general
1: well the, the nuclear supply chain uh, the material flow for construction is very much like uh, any other supply chain for for construction you 've got um, uh, small uh, small components that are manufactured locally that are are trucked into a, a site and then you have some extraordinarily large components that are only can only be produced in one foundry in the world and and can only be shipped on a small handful of of boats that have to be scheduled months in advance so You've got several different sizes and several different time scales, all operational. Um, as far as modes go, some things are, are um, only uh, available to be moved by, by boat and barge, the huge pressure ves- vessels and things like that. There are some things that move by train, um, some of the components for turbines. And then, like I said, there are little small parts, small bore piping, um, pipe spools, little flanges, and things like that that are produced typically locally, and uh, they they run them to the site on on flatbed trucks. So that's the the big picture of the supply chain. The one issue that to me is unique with the material flow for nuclear are the components that are that have to be nuclear rated now. A nuclear power plant, you've got some of the components are nuclear rated, but then there are a whole bunch of parts out there and parts of the plant that are common to to turn steam into uh, electricity. So those don't have to be nuclear uh, rated. So there are lots, not lots, but there are a fair number of of, uh, suppliers. The nuclear-related parts, on the other hand, there can be a very limited number of suppliers. So your supply chain gets a little more complicated because there may be, as I mentioned before, only one foundry in Japan that can uh, produce a certain pressure vessel. There may be only uh, uh, one or two suppliers of particular pumps or valves, and that could be in the United States or could be in Korea or, or wherever. So... It looks like uh, uh, the same supply chain for a big construction project, except it has these nuclear pieces to it that are restrictive, and it has some very large components that are also pretty restrictive.
0: Well, what about the hazmat aspect of it? For instance, what about the transportation of spent fuel rods? Is that not part of the nuclear supply chain as well?
1: yeah uh, of course, the back end is part of the supply chain the part of the uh, that that Scott and I have been working on is the construction aspect. We aren't particularly looking at the back end um, um there's probably more political that's probably more political or a large component is politically motivated and and has political components. But uh, as you no doubt know, right now we're storing uh, spent fuel in uh, on site, and that's getting a little cumbersome For what I read in the newspaper. I have no special knowledge of that.
2: Right. And some of the work I've done with the Santa River site, is exactly what Bill was talking about, where they're taking their spent fuel, turning them into glass cylinders, and then they have their own plan to bury or store them on site in a variety of locations. And I think that there's definitely supply chain aspects to that, especially if they start worrying about transporting them places, but today, our experience is that they are literally dealing with local storage, local disposal of materials, but at some time, yes, the hazmat aspects of moving this stuff are going to have to be taken into account, just like when we route other hazardous materials on the road today.
0: Now, it seems that we have been experiencing a so-called reinvigoration of the nuclear industry, which I imagine is motivated in part by concerns over global warming, from fossil fuel burning, over uh, the consequences, for instance, of of, uh, coal mining and its implications for the environment. That being the case, what are some of the new challenges that that growth in the nuclear industry creates for the supply chain?
2: Well, to me, when I think about, you know, I moved to South Carolina three years ago, I had no idea that our state has 52% of the power that we consume is generated from nuclear sources just in the Carolina area. And you, you hear about the growth of the industry and the reinvigoration, and then you see something like the Fukushima disaster happen, and then immediately people start to say, oh, well, nuclear is unsafe, we should not use it. The reality is, Nuclear is pervasive in many different places, and while every form of generating electricity has its own particular dangers, to the point of your question, where the growth of the nuclear industry and the specialized suppliers that Bill talked about, and who's going to be certifying and regulating the different materials and the different reactor designs and the different technologies, if you will, that generate the nuclear power in the future, from a supply chain standpoint, that idea of the local content, versus the one-off or one-of-a-kind suppliers on the other side of the world who are the only people who can make a certain component will add some logistical challenges because a lot of the local content happens where a company decides that they're going to put a reactor or they get their operating license to put a reactor in a certain location. They then set up those shops in the local area or buy existing companies and start to generate the capacity they need to make those parts within the local area They still have to deal with raw materials getting in, the manufacturing, the workforce being available to actually manufacture the parts to the proper level and specification. So from a supply chain standpoint, as more and more reactor sites and reactors get built, it might turn up that these one-offs and two-offs, there might be some competition in that marketplace. But then from the logistics standpoint, the competition for the material and equipment that can move it and haul it and the design of the logistics network, I think will get more competitive because as Bill is mentioning, there are some ships, let's say there's one of them in the world, they currently have an 18 to 24 month lead time. If you want to get on their schedule for them to move one of your large components, if your production slips and you don't hit your delivery window, you're going to get back in line because that boat is already booked. So the the competition Logistics resources, I think, is going to only increase.
0: Will the infrastructure be there to handle it supply chain wise? That's a great
2: question. That, that's a great question. Every state right now is dealing with budget shortcuts, and their roads are, and bridges need more repair. There needs to be more money in the states for infrastructure. When Bill's talking about, you know, by boat, there are a lot of ports like the Port of Charleston here in South Carolina. They're deepening their ports, getting ready for the Panama Canal to be open later this year, where the big boats can make it from China now to the East Coast seaboard. There's a lot of ports that are getting ready to handle these bigger ships that can handle this freight, but if you think about in the United States, we depend a lot on the road network with trucks. We have some rail. We have a great rail system, but it's not as um, pervasive as it is in Europe, such that we have the need to make sure our infrastructure stays ready. And you don't want your solution to be let's just put it on a plane and fly it because the cost is quite prohibitive, even though the service can be quite nice. So the infrastructure concerns that we have just as consumers today for our regular roads and bridges are magnified when you think about hauling any kind of construction equipment with nuclear just being one of them. Absolutely.
1: Let, let me take a, a quick uh, turn on on the last two questions, because um, I had been in the nuclear industry for a while and, and was out of it, just a reader uh, of you know, the newspaper. And uh, Scott and I started working on some projects a couple of three years ago, and one of the things that I had, uh, I hope I knew, but I hadn't remembered, was that uh, the U.S. right now is, is a very small player in new construction. Um, there, there are a lot of nuclear plants being built around the world. Uh, China has uh, a number right now that are under construction. So when we start talking, and, and I think it's fair for I mean, it's something we, sh- we should be worrying about. Scott and I worry about plants in the United States. And when we do some work and we start identifying plants, it's, it's plants at Vogel, that's a, a southern power plant. And, and it's the plants at V.C. Summer that's uh, in South Carolina with Scania, and it's plants that Duke Power are looking looking to build. But, but those plants are just a small number of the larger group that are being built around the world. So um, all we really need, I mean, if you want to really tax the supply chain and tax the suppliers, is if... Uh, a country with, with lots of money, say, Saudi Arabia decides that they're going to start producing their power using nuclear or using nuclear for desalination or for whatever reason, um, we could tax the production uh, facilities around the world uh, to, the, to max capacity very quickly. And as Scott mentioned, we're, we're worrying also worrying about the the um, transport, and you could tax some of the. I mean, you, you're right, Scott. There's a uh, 18 to 24 month waiting time right now for certain vessels that that are the only ones that can handle the size and tonnage of some of these components, and um, as we increase the demand. The the same things happen as it does if you're if you're buying uh, consumer goods, The demand goes up and the price is going to go up and the uh, availability is going to go down, and and it can get it's going to become a real challenge, I believe.
0: Yeah, but it doesn't sound like Fukushima really slowed anything down. But I'm wondering another issue might have I'm not sure, and that is the recent surge in production and discovery of reserves of natural gas and shale oil. Is that causing anyone to back off of nuclear? Saying, "Oh, wait, wait a minute, we got plenty of fossil fuels left."
1: The, the things that I read, um, and again, we are a little fortunate because by living in South Carolina, it's 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 actually local news, where the 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 most uh, where, where the new construction in the in the more, in the more foreseeable future is all local news. I don't believe that any of those plants have been. Um, have been impacted by um, the natural gas or the shale. I, I don't. Um, the the length of time it takes between when you begin to think about a, a nuke and when you permit it is so long. Um, I'm sure that the executives at these utilities are considering that. I'm, I'm also equally sure that when you're putting a, a plant online that might take by the time you start until you can complete it might take seven to ten years and its useful lifetime is another what 50 now um i i think that the that the parameters are look look important to us as consumers but i think when you're taking a much longer more strategic view of things i, I imagine that they're in a little differently but that's just bill guessing at what a an executive with all the information would be doing as opposed to having any real insight.
2: I would agree. I mean, the process to get one of these places approved, licensed, built, and then up and operating is such a time horizon that we have been waiting in this country for these operating licenses to be approved so we can start the new construction. There's a lot of changes in the marketplace, different options over that time horizon. Once you have that commission, commitment to do what in essence comes up to approximately a billion dollars a year for ten years during the construction cycle, we're gonna go after it no matter these other reserves coming up. It might sway the marketplace in terms of what the customers might want to choose. But when people look at the the environmental benefits of nuclear, the clean the cleanliness of it and just how they can be very efficient. As Bill said around the world this is the secret's out. We're just coming to the party a little late in the United States. I don't think these fluctuations are going to have much impact on these plants. They're, they're not going to stop building down at plant uh, VC summer because of these reports. They're going to continue and stay the course.
0: All right. Well, that being the case, let's talk about some possible new procurement strategies that might be put into place as a way of coping with the growth of the industry and the new challenges that it faces. What are some of the developments along those lines?
1: It, it so happens that uh, in some other uh, uh, endeavors that Scott and I have, we talk to people in procurement for large construction companies on a, on a regular basis, and uh, everything that you might expect is going on, and and all the, the things that, that you would guess are worrying these folks, they're worrying about. Um Procurement is certainly international. Uh, Sourcing is coming all over the world. The the world is indeed flat and getting flatter. Um, Your procurement organizations are becoming worldwide. The the companies that that we have a chance to to talk with, some of these folks, Uh, some of the procurement executives have uh, procurement offices all over the world. They need people that are local to understand culture. They need people to understand how to communicate, negotiate. They have to worry about quality. Um, we all have known and, and know the horror stories about uh, sourcing out of um, out of uh, countries where the quality is inferior. Um, that's a, a big deal. The Construction Industry Institute is a, a really interesting and, um, and and I think extremely important. Um, Center out of the University of Texas, Texas, Texas at Austin that does work in trying to to help companies and they they put academics and and industry people together to work on projects and they've had ongoing projects in counterfeit items. Um, one of the issues there, as is, as anybody insider will tell you, is if it was just a matter of of a counterfeit item um, coming from a certain place, you could figure that one out. The problem becomes when you get these worldwide, highly integrated uh, procurement organizations. Sometimes the counterfeit occurs two or three echelons back from the, the people you buy it from. It could be a supplier, supplier where the problem is. And so the problems are integrated and they are challenging and all I can tell you is everything that I see out of the the work that the construction industry institute is doing and what they are showing and all the executives that that we have a chance to talk to is um they are moving their their procurement organizations all over the world uh they fortunately communication is is allowing folks to do this in real time they are doing everything they can to address these concerns about uh, about quality and counterfeit items, but at the same time the realization that that uh, procurement and sourcing around the world is what's required, and competition around the world is what they are, they are uh, facing so um, that's that's what I see in in the procurement world is um, they are moving more towards some of the supply chain strategies of manufacturing in that uh, I don't know how long ago, but it's probably not too long that you got three bids and, and picked the lowest cost. Um, every major construction company that I know of now is developing uh, partnerships and they're developing um, suppliers that they work with. Uh, almost the, if you, if you read the, uh, information about uh, Toyota. They, I guess, were one of the pioneers in coming up with uh, uh, working with individual companies and and giving a lot of uh, a lot of uh, business to to a few companies that, in return, uh, really did the job for them.
0: Okay, but but well, I want to ask you, what kinds of materials are being counterfeited?
1: If you go to the the uh, Construction Industry Institute's website uh, or contact the folks down there. Um, it's it's everything from switches to valves to I'm sure raw materials. But at a um, at a, one of their annual meetings, probably it'd be two or three years ago, the research team actually had what they called a petting zoo, where they had the original uh, authentic component and a counterfeit land side by side. And you had to go, or if you wanted to, you walked down there with a little sheet of paper, and you were trying to figure out which one was the real one and which one was counterfeit. And I did really bad and felt, well, gee, you know, stupid old academic can't figure these things out until I started talking to people that had been in the industry for 20 and 30 years that did as bad as I could. Um, They're getting counterfeit, a lot of counterfeit components. And it's not just nuclear. Now this is this is general stuff. So the the paper trail and the authenticity is something that um, all of these construction companies are worrying about and are spending extraordinary amounts of time and effort and I'm sure money to ensure that they're getting good products. And and if if anybody had uh, was worrying, asking the question, should we be doing this, and went to that petting zoo, it was answered because it, really, it was really eye-opening, the uh, proliferation of counterfeit stuff and um, how good it looked and how important it was that your procurement organizations really address
0: this. Is it a threat to safety, to plant safety?
1: Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, of, of course. I mean, anything that's counterfeit is a threat to anybody, right? I, I, regardless of how small it is, even if it's just uh, things start leaking. Um, my my uh, my understanding, no, my recall, and what I'm sure with the nuclear part is that this is uh, a totally another, a whole other realm. But when you're talking about, uh, oh, let's take uh, valves for, say, service water, which doesn't do much other than supply water to various places, you know, if, if that's counterfeit and starts leaking, it's, it's an annoyance, and it's something that could shut down a, a process to have it fixed. So even if it doesn't pose safety issues, it certainly affects the operations, and it certainly affects the supply chain because the supply chain has got to ensure, and in and, and construction and nuclear in particular, it's not only just moving the materials – it's also ensuring that they are they are the right materials and that they are not counterfeit.
0: Scott, do you have and, any ideas on, on how uh quality might be assured and counterfeit might be avoided and, and how the supply chain might be secured in the nuclear world?
1: That's that's not uh my expertise, but I can tell you that the that the their groups and, and as I said, each company is spending huge amounts of time and effort and money and they are investing in the Construction Industry Institute, as well as a sister organization, Theotec, that Scott and I also do some work for um, in looking at at people and technology solutions to this, and and it's it's a big deal. And, and as Bill
2: was mentioning, you know, as we get more and more global, a lot of companies have gone to these we'll call them strategic supplier alliances or some kind of agreements where they handpick suppliers they do a lot of business with around the world, and they really even visit their shop and check on their quality. And they they basically give them, you don't have to ever give us the lowest price. We're going to agree to competitive pricing, but you're going to be my go-to source for these kind of materials. And I'm going to have access to your facility. You're going to have access to my facility. We're going to share best practices. We're going to develop a partnership rather than a job-by-job, let's see who I can go to the market and get this material from when they have these strategic supplier partnerships or strategic supplier agreements, that's one way that if I know that I can always come to you to get my vows, for example, I might pay a little more in the long run, but I know that it's the right thing to do that I can guarantee and inspect the process and the material and where you're getting it from. And if we have more of these partnerships, this will help mitigate some of that counterfeiting. But as Bill mentioned, When the counterfeiting happens three decisions before you ever even talk to the supplier, it's very difficult for you to know it's happening, but the ramifications can be quite detrimental.
0: Of course, the downside of that is that you create sole source supplier relationships, right? In which case, if you have a glitch or that supplier goes down for any reason, you have no alternative source for your parts.
2: Right. So they might have a couple of these agreements for a certain class of material, because you're right. They don't want to get in the case where there's only one source of supply, and if something happens, we're out of luck. But what I'm saying is I'm not going to go to a 1,000 different valve vendors. Maybe I have four in my stable of pre-certified, pre-qualified. We know it's quality material, and they're the ones that I'm going to let bid my jobs rather than going to the open marketplace. But you're right. We need to not paint ourselves into a corner by being so lean and so efficient that one hiccup that somebody impacts me. But as most of these large firms are running multiple jobs on multiple continents, it's possible that one job, they could buy all, all of the material up in the world if they need it. So they need from a given supplier, so they need multiple sources of supply. I'm just suggesting that they're going to be partnering with them and qualifying them to make sure – As much so as possible, they try to mitigate these potential safety impacts.
0: Well, lots of challenges to be addressed, and uh, they will be, in fact, addressed at the IQPC Nuclear Supply Chain Procurement and Vendor Management Summit, which will take place April 28th through 30th in Greenville, South Carolina, in you gentleman's backyard, correct? Um, I'm yeah. sorry we don't have any more time. Uh, we, we are out of time. We could talk about this for a lot longer, but um, I'm sure anyone interested in that would, should take note of that summit. I will uh, refer to it in the show notes for this episode as well. So, uh, again, I want to thank Bill Farrell and Scott Mason. Uh, Bill, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Scott, thank you so much.
2: I enjoyed it. Thanks for your time.
0: Thanks again. That was Professors Bill Farrell and Scott Mason of Clemson University. Thank you for listening. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, And follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.